How do I know what I think until I see what I say? I'm your host, Jacob Goronsky, and welcome to From the Green Notebook, where we create leaders one podcast at a time. So if you don't feel like reading a blog today, then sit back and listen as we discuss some of the most important topics and talk with some of the most innovative leaders of today. So please subscribe and make sure you listen to these exclusive episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic, the best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're listening from. And welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. Another huge thank you to our listeners for making our podcast an early success. We just passed 800 downloads, and that is a direct result of our loyal fan base, subscribers, and listeners. So we really have had some interesting guests on our show so far, and none more so than today's speaker, Adam Robinson. Adam is a rated chess master and has been awarded a Life Master title by the U.S. Chess Federation. He was mentored by Bobby Fischer in the 18 months leading up to Bobby winning the World Chess Championship. He's the co-founder of the Princeton Review, and his book, Cracking the System, the SAT, is still the only test prep book to have become a New York Times bestseller. He's an independent global macro advisor to some of the world's most successful hedge funds. As you can see, Adam's experience really spans across multiple spectrums. And in this special two-part series... Adam really dives into some important topics to include mindfulness, overcoming depression, and a specific type of meditation that he used to get himself through some of his dark times in life. And Adam really focuses on a skill that I think a lot of leaders and a lot of people in general undervalue, and that's being present with other people. With so much going on in the world, technology, entertainment, podcasts, blogs, it's easy to get distracted. And Adam gives some really great insight on how to be present in each and every moment and fully give yourself to whatever it is that you're doing while avoiding distractions at all costs. We first learned about Adam through The Tim Ferriss Show, and Joe and Adam have cultivated their relationship over the years. And from the first moment that I heard Adam and was introduced to him, I was hooked. I was completely captivated by him and started going through and watching and listening to anything Adam Robinson I could get my hands on. To me, he just really has such an amazing outlook on life. He has a ton of experience. He started his early years in a hospital bed and was able to overcome that to become a pretty amazing individual. So I'm so excited to sit down and share this time with today's guest, Adam Robinson. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so I really appreciate you coming on and sitting down with us, and we'll get right into it. I'll ask the first question. On your interview with Tim Ferriss, you had brought up the fact that when you were five years old, that you'd spent some extended time in a hospital bed. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments you made was that you actually not only had to divorce yourself from the outside world, 
but you had to divorce yourself from your own body. I found that fascinating. And, and I'd love it if you could just go into a little bit of detail on how that affected you then. And when you look back, how it's affected you throughout your life. Well, you know, everybody has coping mechanisms, right? And they, you know, they work more or less well. And a lot of times, you know, if your childhood is sufficiently difficult, then you develop coping mechanisms that work in childhood, but it's not like they're optimized. Just so that people know, I spent, uh, do you remember the movie Forrest Gump, Jacob? So yes, sir. at the beginning of that movie, he had those leg braces, right? Remember if run, Forrest, run. I do, yes. So I had those leg braces in a bed for two and a half years. So mm-hmm. I could rotate my torso, that was it. And so anything outside, like a, a two foot radius of my torso was out of reach. Anything I wanted, I'd have to ask for it for two and a half years. So it was a children's hospital. It's called Blythedale. It was started by Eleanor Roosevelt because her, her husband had polio. So you learn first, you know, two and a half years, that's a long time between four and six and a half. And everything is out of reach. So you learn to observe the world, but you can't touch it. And you learn to think about it like I taught myself to read it for. You learn to think about it, but you can't touch it. So I was, you know, pretty much divorced from the world and and divorced from my own body because it couldn't do anything. I was immobilized for two and a half years. But then, you know, became very athletic. I was a swimmer, used to train four to five and a half hours a day, seven days a week, you know, like 48 weeks a year, really serious, serious. But I was still dissociated from the world, very introverted. And then about five years ago, I, I sort of woke up to the world and the people in it, which, you know, after a lot of years, I'm not, uh, not a young man anymore. But it was like discovering, wow, people. I could have a lot of fun with people. That almost sounds like some, you said you woke up, so that is an awakening. How does that happen? I mean, I know you can't detail it, but what is it? feel like when you realize, because you made the, the comment in one of your other, other talks that Mark Twain has a quote that actually <laughs> I fell in love with when I heard it, that two greatest moments are the moment you're born and the moment you realize why. Yeah. And it sounds like you had that realization. <laughs> this is why I'm on the earth. You know, a lot of people ask me that, Jacob, and, and um, it's hard to describe because it really was just one day I woke up. Wasn't this big experience? I wasn't even thinking about it. In fact, actually, when I really, really, really woke up was on uh, Tim's podcast back in uh, December 2016, almost four years ago. He asked me what lessons I had learned that year, right in 2016. Because I said, every year at the end of the, like in December, I take stock of the year. I try to think of what lessons I've learned. So he said, well, what lessons did you learn this year? And I just blurted out, I, I learned three lessons. And it wasn't even something I had given any thought to. I said, always create fun and delight for the other person, regardless of whatever you're there for, job interview, you're going on a date, something high stakes, whatever, just create fun and delight for the other person with enthusiasm. And I said, the second thing I learned was to connect with the other and really with no other agenda. Like right now, Jacob, my attention is totally focused on you. Mm -hmm nothing else in the world. I don't know what you're thinking about me. I don't know what anybody's thinking about me. I'm just focused on you. And then I said, the third thing is to lean into each moment and every encounter expecting magic or miracles. I really want to underscore that. 
you know, what it means to, to feel that way. So Jacob and Joe, I want you to imagine it's day before your birthday. It's 1130 at night. It's almost midnight, almost your birthday. Mm-hmm. And you know, on your birthday, that people who care about you are going to surprise and delight you. And you don't know from what direction it's going to come, but you know you're going to get some presents, right? Some hugs, maybe a surprise birthday party. And you know this. Again, you don't know what from what direction. And literally every time I walk out of my apartment, I feel that way. I feel like it's my birthday and Christmas rolled into one. And I can't wait to see what presents the universe is going to give me. I mean, I know this. It's, it's not an act of faith. I just know it. That, that, that's amazing, Adam. And you, you said that four years ago. So, you know, you, you've obviously had some experience kind of with this new mindset. So in this four years, since, since you made those comments, I mean, what is what have you discovered about that, that change in mindset? Hold on, because I, I, you asked such a good question and I have to, I have to calibrate in my head because I can, I can reveal the secret to serendipity, but it takes about 30 minutes. But that's actually what, what's going on. If you, I'll give you the abridged version. Really, really, if you lean into each moment and every encounter, expecting magic or miracles, they happen in astonishing ways. I'll give you an example, actually. It happened hmm, three weeks ago. So I'm going to get this, uh, this really cool uh, IV drip, super cool, state-of-the-art, medical, nutritious drip, right? Like in your blood. And the person who is going to administer it lives in San Diego. So she's got to come up from San Diego. I'm in LA right now. So we're talking and having a lot of fun and, and ask her how she spells her name. It's Crystal. I said, you spell it with a C or a K? She said, K. And I said, oh, K-R-Y-S-T-A-L. I ain't thinking I got it right. She said, no, K-R-Y-S-T-L-E. And I went, oh, give me a break. You're just trying to confuse me. I said, I'm going to spell your name with a Q. I'm going to call you Crystal. The Q is silent. Q-K-R-Y-S-T-L-E. So she bursts out laughing. We're having a fun time. Mind you, I've never met her before, right? I said, would you like to know the secret to serendipity? She said, yeah, I sure would. And so I spent like 30, 45 minutes telling her. And she said, really? Like magic and miracles come out? I said, all the time with me. You can't believe. She said, wow, that's really cool. Anyway, the next day, guys, I'm going to a hyperbaric oxygen chamber therapy. I don't know if you guys know about that, but it's super heard cool. of it, yeah. Unbelievable. It's like a panacea. It's really unbelievable. Whether it's workouts or illnesses, I would say 5 to 10x your healing rate. Unbelievable. Something that a wound that would take, say, six weeks to heal, gone in a week. So I was there and I was doing that because I work out hard. And anyway, I was joking around with someone in the facility telling jokes whose name was Natalie. Not that it's any big deal. I say all this for a reason. I was telling her a joke and she was laughing so hard she was running away from me. And I said, wait, wait, come back. I got to tell you this joke. Anyway, I thought I saw her. So this woman turns around with her back to me because she was wearing exactly the same clothes. I said, oh, you're not Natalie. She said, no, my name is Crystal. I said, wait a second. You're not Crystal, are you? Her jaw dropped. She said, wait a second. Are you Adam? I said, see, I told you. Mind you, I'd spoken to her the day before in San Diego and just told her that's how I manifest things. And she just experienced it. By the way, there's anyone who wants to sort of get a sense of it should watch Slumdog Millionaire. That's a great movie. Fantastic. But watch it again. And I'm going to give you a big hint. You have to watch what Jamal, the hero, you have to watch what he notices and why. 
That's a big clue. Going to say this is a, a leadership podcast, so I don't want to go too far down this road. But I, I think what you said is amazing, and it reminds me of um, Eckhart Tolle when he mm-hmm. says, you know, when he had his spiritual awakening, how he basically sat on a park bench for I think a year, just watching, and it wasn't a big moment. It just kind of came over him, and he realized he had a whole new realization and awakening. I know one of the big things that for our military audience here is is depression and suicide rates are very high. And I know you've spoken before about some bouts with depression. And yeah, I think you said that it works by getting a vice grip on your thinking. I want to talk about it. Yeah. yeah so please do. I mean, for, for our audience, because you made one thing, one comment that I want you to focus on too. It said you avoid depression by remaining energetic. And I want to, for our listeners, if you can explain the difference between energetic and active, because okay. a lot of our military people are active. Of course, of course. So I would say between the ages of 12 and 30, it was eight out of 10 depressed, like a scale. And it took my father's life. And there were lots of times when I you know, asked the Hamlet question, to be or not to be. And then sometime around 30, it kind of stopped. It was more episodic, like in the wintertime. Like I would notice the hallmarks of it, right? When the days got shorter, weather got colder. I developed a routine of every winter going south, like say to Florida or California, where the light, where the days were longer and it wasn't so cold. The depressions usually coincided between about 30 and 50 with with, um, the winter, really bad, awful, like 10 out of 10. I remember once I didn't get out of bed literally for a couple of months. I drew all my blinds. I created kind of a cave in my apartment and didn't leave. It was all I could do to just kind of get through it. And I know a lot of the the returning, the veterans, there are times when you just think, how am I going to get through this? Just another day. And it's soul crushing. It's hard for people who haven't experienced it to know how painful it is, right? They just go, oh, you're just sad, very sad. No, it's, it's way worse than that. One thing that really helped was noticing the physiology that led to, that often triggered a a depressive incident. And I I was talking with Tim also about this too. And I said, somewhere around the age of 50, it just lifted. When I became authentic with myself, I fully accepted myself. That's a lot easier said than done. I know. It's really hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easy. And I know the pain. I really do. I've been there. Like it's, Draman call it the hell realms. It's brutal. And so- Sometimes you just have to kind of get through it. You have to be careful with antidepressants, which have no statistical proof that they work whatsoever. None. And there's a great book. I'm going to recommend it. It's called Connections with this young man who suffered from depression. And he, he realized that the, antide- you know, the, the medications he was taking weren't helping. And his solution was connect with other people. Think of a laser beam, Jacob. A laser beam, all the photons in the light beam are going in exactly the same direction, all of them. So there's no interference. They're all moving in the same direction and it's an incredible power. And regular light, none of the photons are moving in the same direction. They keep bumping into each other. And when you live inauthentically, when you deny a part of yourself, say you deny anger or you deny uh, depression, part of your soul is at odds with another part. And instead of all your... I use the word energetics, instead of all of your your being and all your emotions and everything working in harmony, they're fighting each other. 
I really do think that part of depression is rage turned inward. So my first recommendation would be to become aware of the physiology of your depression, like what, what tends to precede it. For many people, it's that they even have a name, seasonal affective disorder, right? And I really do believe that if we turn our attention outward, it's not easy. It's not easy. It helps deal with depression. One of my dear hearts was, this is like day before Christmas, a year and a half ago, like almost two years ago. So not last year, but anyway, she was talking to me and talking about how, how depressed she was and lonely and a lot of things, like nothing in her life was going right, even though she's enormously successful. And on paper, it looks like she got everything going for her, but she was very unhappy. Day before Christmas, Joe. I mean, Jacob. Joe's here too. It's okay. No, Joe's in the background. <laughs> and uh, so I said, I listened to her for about 45 minutes. And I said, do you know anyone in real need? And she's thoughtful. And she thought for a second. She just didn't blurt out, yes, I do. She really thought about it. She said, yes, I do. I know two people. I said, is either in New York? She said, in fact, they're both in New York. She lived in New York at the time. And I said, great, I'm going to go now. I'd like you to call up one of them and go take care of that person. And And a week later, she called me up about something or other. And I said, I kind of dreaded the answer to this question. I said, how was your Christmas? And she said, you know, Adam, you told me to go and take care of someone, but I was in just such a bad mood. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to go outside. And here I was pointing to the open cell door. Like that's the way out. Go take care of somebody. Like I'm sure, you know, veterans know when they take care of a brother, it helps. And so two brothers taking care of each other can really be helpful. When I was at uh, Oxford, I used, every Sunday I would go to London and, and have high tea with this woman, Marguerite Littman. And she wrote a column for British Vogue called Dear Daisy. And she said, Adam, every relationship consists of a flower and a gardener. And a flower can't water itself, needs a gardener. It can't water itself. It can't make sure there's too much sun, doesn't get nutrients. Flower needs a gardener. And a gardener needs a flower. After all, what's a gardener without a flower to take care of? And she said, a relationship with two, two flowers, not going to work. And, and two gardeners, that's, that's not going to work either. She said, you need a flower and a gardener. She said, the trick is that who the flower is and who the gardener is changes from day to day. You know, veterans, you know, they, they're not used to being flowers, right? They're used to being in command. And they're not, they're not used to asking for help. And um, by the way, if you know someone who's depressed, right, you have a, a brother who's or a sister who's depressed, best way to help them is to ask them for help because they feel worthless, right? That's one of the things of depression. You know, like, I, I, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm not, I'm not good to society anymore. Veterans, they come back from combat and society just actually doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Right? They feel kind of worthless. From that position, if you're in a leadership position or you're supervising somebody, what are some of the signs that you could look for maybe to know when to ask them Hey, are you okay? Because to your point, military people a lot of times won't want to show weakness or come forward and say, Hey, I'm hurt, I'm depressed. It's things you just don't hear very often. So, yeah. what are some of the things that you, as a person uh, who's possibly Here's, in charge of them? I'm going to reframe that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to frame depression as a battle. If you want to say a battle with the devil, fine. I'm, I'm in a battle and I need help. We don't, go to, we don't go to combat alone. And so there's a way to ask for help because you're in a battle. And really only someone who's been there, 
In other words, felt those emotions. Other people can't. They don't. They they have no frame of reference for it. They they just don't understand. Yeah, I I recently returned from a deployment, Adam, and I I think one of the biggest things that I struggled with was a sense of purpose. You know, like you mm. you have a you have a sense of purpose every day, and so beautiful. Um, and yeah, and when I came back, you know, there was time off. I came back during the COVID. COVID environment. So that was, Hmm. you know, further restricting movement. And so, you know, for me, just within the last year or so, I really started diving into stoicism and the, you know, the teachings of, of uh, Epictetus and Seneca and and, and meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And I just, I found strength in that to be able to kind of just take on that mindset and, and strength in knowing that, you know, this isn't something new, you know, this is something that people have been wrestling with for centuries. For millennia. Exactly. Right. And so it's so funny you say uh, a, a sense of purpose, right? Because in combat, you, the sense of purpose is protecting the men on either side of you, right? And the mission. And you come back and then that sense of really powerful purpose is, is, is gone. And you have, to, you have to create your own. And I'm going to invite your audience, anyone, to consider the following, that everything in your life has perfectly prepared you for your mission in the next stage of your life. Everything, every success, every failure, everything, um, every good thing that happened and everything that seemed bad and could even have been bad has perfectly prepared you for who you need to be in the world. And again, even if your purpose just for a while is taking care of others, you got to get out of yourself, right? That's a purpose, taking care of others. And there's surely other veterans and, and people outside the military who are in real need, real pain, real pain. I did this experiment and I told, you know, I, I call it the Google experiment. And it's something your, your listeners can do right now. So Joe, you may remember this. I like before your deployment and we were talking and I, one day I, I went to Google and I was curious what people were interested in learning how to do. I just curious. You could learn anything, how to tap, tap dance, how to how to throw a, a touchdown pass, how to hula hoop, whatever. So I type in, how can I learn to? And your listeners should do that. How can I learn to? And you will see the autofill for the, for the number one response is how can I learn to love myself? Think about that. The most searched for thing to learn how to do is how can I learn to love myself? And that's so tragic. And I, I was so heartbroken by that, guys. I, I, I thought, well, how, how do people feel? So I type into Google, why do I feel so? Why do I feel so? And let it autofill. And five of the top 10 responses, this, this, I'm just doing it from memory, but why do I feel so tired, lonely, lost, depressed, tired all the time? By the way, tired is a euphemism for depression. And then I type in, because I thought, well, what do people, when they look out at the world, what do they see? I type in, why is everyone else? And when you type that in, you get, why is everyone else so perfect in a relationship, successful, pretty skinny, but me. And so part of the healing process is just becoming aware that what what each person feels, pretty much everybody feels it. It's not just a you thing. It doesn't make it any easier. And, And again, depression is sort of its own class by itself. You know, it occurs to me, actually, I, I want to re- remember to say this. About five years ago, one of my besties uh, says, uh, Adam, like, do you meditate? 
And I said, no, I, I can't sit still. <laughs> really, I, I have a hard time sitting still for more than about three minutes. And, and so he said, well, have you tried heart rate variability training? And I said, well, no, I hadn't. He said, oh, he said, get in touch with Dr. Leia Lagos. And she just came out with a book, which I highly recommend. Dr. Leia Lagos. Forget the title of the book. I think it's called Breath, Heart, Mind, something like that. But heart rate variability training, this should be at every like, you know, veterans hospital and everything. You learn through biofeedback to control your heart by controlling your breath. You might say, well, what's the big deal about the heart? I'll tell you what the big deal is. <laughs> the heart is the seat of all your emotions. You guys know that when you're tense, maybe your shoulders a little tight, your back, right? For me, often, it's also my calves to store a lot of tension in my calves. And every emotion we feel, our body is like a, an emotion computer. It's processing all of it and storing it. And all of those emotions are stored in the most important muscle of all, in your heart. And with heart rate variability training, which is like biofeedback, you can learn to control your heart like a yogi, like who's been meditating for like 20 years. You can learn to do that in a couple of months. And then you can just breathe through emotions, including depression. Not easy, but you can. Yeah, I think I had read some things once that talked about the power of breath. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've read many things because they say without breath, you die. So it, it oh, really yeah. uh -huh. tells you how important breathing is. So I think that's something to really focus on. Um, meditation is great for, I think, not anybody who's going through depression, but even if you can't quiet your mind. But wait, wait, I'm, I said something very specific. I didn't say any old meditation. Mm -hmm. I said heart rate variability training. Through breathing, you learn to control your heart, which is where all your emotions, right? The, the poets and philosophers have been saying for like, like 3,000 years, the heart is the seat of your emotions. And it's true. And with breath work, you can learn to control your heart and your emotions. So there. Pivot just a little bit, kind of, you were talking about your emotions, your mind. I know you said in one of your interviews that you had a chess match that you were in and you felt like somebody was standing behind you and whispered uh, in your ear. Yeah. And, and, and then I know in another podcast, you talked about intuition and listening to yourself. Yes. I'd love to hear your take on what intuition is. Is it our Thank mind you. working so far in front of us or is it something innate? Um, and does everybody have it? So yes, but not everyone is attuned to it. And so it's so funny you should mention that. So I would say one of my superpowers is I've spent the last 30 years of my life honing my intuition. And so what does that mean? I know, think of your logical brain, right? It does deductive thinking. And that logic was invented about 2,500 years ago, right? In ancient Greece. And there was another dude in ancient Greece, Heraclitus, who didn't want to have anything to do with logic. And he's the guy who said, you can't step into the same stream twice. And logic is good at cutting up the world. That's what logic does. But logic is not and never can get you to creative insights. Never can. I mean, and I, in fact, I can prove that. Logic can never lead to creative insights or truth, for that matter, right, with a capital T. And so throughout the millennia, various artists and scientists have found ways to shut down the logical brain. You want to shut down the logical brain, and then you're just left with your intuitive brain. 
And we think of the logical brain, like we're so proud of logic and rationality. And, but the way to think about it is like, it's like a, an abacus. That's how primitive logic is. Whereas your intuitive processing, your irrational, your unconscious mind is like a, an n-dimensional supercomputer. And so really what you want to do is learn to recognize first how you can shut your, your logical brain down. And, uh, and Tim, I, I know I mentioned uh, bed, bath, and bus, right? Like sitting in a bathtub uh, in bed or traveling. For me, being on a podcast like this gets me in touch with my creative mind because I, I talk fast enough that my logical brain can't keep up. I have no idea where I'm going. It's like parkour, right? When you just leap off cliff, you have no idea where you're going to land and good luck. And for me, that's so exciting. And, and so I would say leaders have to learn to trust their intuition. I know there are times of day when I'm more intuitive, like right when I wake up and also between 8.30 and midnight is super powerful, like crazy powerful. And so, you know, each of us has to learn how to tap our unconscious mind, our intuitive mind, because it's doing a whole lot more work than our puny little rational mind. I know when you were also did the, the Tim Ferriss show, you said that he talked about hammer. And if you're a hammer, you see everything as a nail and that geniuses yeah. are able to find nails, right? Yeah. So I'm interested, have you known anybody can cross domains that basically maybe to put it a different way that they don't see everything as a nail, but they can actually manipulate something to become a okay. nail? That's really good. So I think it's a really interesting question. So just so everyone has a frame of reference, I said, so Tim asked me, what's the common denominator with all the geniuses I've known in my life, like Fisher and Warhol, Buffett? I said, they all have a hammer, very limited tool set. And they just, they're geniuses finding nails. And that's all they do. They're really good at finding nails. And they don't deviate from that. And so your question about, have I ever known anyone to be cross-disciplinary? Not many people. And I would say that even when it seems like they are, they're using a skill set that they developed it's still kind of a hammer in another sense. So for example, Josh Waitzkin was one of the best chess players in the world, gives it up and then becomes world champ at uh, push hands martial arts two years in a row. There aren't many chess players who make the leap to world champ in martial arts. But if you think about it, chess is all about strategizing and moving in space, right? Your pieces in space and martial arts, same kind of thing. You're moving in space. And a lot of it is tactical. So even there, I would say that he was really exploiting his hammer. I don't know anyone who's like, really, you know what? Da Vinci. Okay, there's a dude. Okay, he's cross-disciplinary. He had a bunch of hammers. I would say Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin, who was a scientist, a statesman, an essayist. You mentioned Da Vinci. And one of the things that I loved about Da Vinci was that, um, you know, he kept a commonplace notebook. Mm. Everything he observed in the environment, he would write down in it. He'd write down the books he wanted to read. He would write down quotes. And so he was able to kind of look across all these different disciplines in his mm -hmm. notebook that would fill a page because at the time, like paper was hard to come by. And so yeah. he had to make use of, of everything. And so when, when I read about Da Vinci, I, I try to, I try to strive for that too. So I, I started keeping a notebook and putting everything in that, like, uh, like Da Vinci did. I will tell you that all the greats have notebooks with them, all of them. There's not a meeting I go to with someone that's not a, a, a successful person where we both don't immediately take out notebooks. 
take notes on what the other person says, also our own thoughts. And uh, I can't tell you how many times other people in the room won't take out notebooks. I promise you, if there are 10 people in a room and two people take out notebooks, it'll be the two most successful people writing down their ideas. I'm sure you, Joe, I'm sure you do that with your reading, your books, right? You, you take down notes, annotate in the margins. And again, all the greats, doesn't matter what it is, they are, there's something about writing things down, which is different from typing it into a computer. Something about the, the tactility of that and the, the intimacy of a page and the nuances that you can get with a pen or a pencil or a bunch of colored pens. So that's a good practice. And, and by the way, it's something that leaders should do. You know, it reminds me of uh, Stephen Jobs. I remember back in the day, he's pretty brutal, right, as a leader, but he created really great things. But I remember something that really impressed me. In the old, early days of Apple, mind you, he's the CEO, he could frequently be seen sweeping the floors. Think about that. Stephen Jobs, the CEO, is sweeping the floors. Now, I'll tell you something. What's the subtext message that he's sending to everybody? I'm willing to do anything. Keep your area clean. I mean, there are all, so many beautiful lessons there. And so, so, yeah, leadership, you know, is to embody how you want people to behave. Um, let me just interject real quick. The name of the podcast is From the Green Notebook, and that's taken um, because wow. a lot of the, the military people have these green notebooks that we carry around and write in. So. I thought it was a good opportunity to say, couldn't agree more about the notebook thing. And, and Joe and I both have um, our green notebooks that we, that we write in. So just to piggyback off your comments. I, I used to take notebooks when I was a swimmer in junior high through college. Every workout I ever did, I recorded all the times, the workouts, the, the repeats, everything. And I lost it. So bummed. Somehow lost it. And Start I, a new one. I know, but it, it would be lovely to go back and my thoughts, you know, it wasn't just sure. the workouts I recorded. It was my, you know, my successes and my failures and, and uh, how I was always looking to, to improve, do something better on every dimension, right? Nutrition, weights, stretching, anything that would improve my 200 fly time. So do you still have that practice today of, of keeping it? I know you say you take a notebook in with you to meetings, but do you still, you know, some, at some level, uh, use a notebook for journaling uh, to, to yes. kind of capture these insights? Yes. So I have a practice that I've had since I was about 13 or 14. And the practice is this. Every night, right before I go to sleep, I ask God or the universe a question, depending on the kind of question. And, uh, and it's a big question, like not who's going to win the Super Bowl. Some big question, like what's my, how can I best serve the world, for example? Question like that. And then the next morning, so I do that as I'm falling asleep. The next morning, I wake up with a pad of paper and a pen, and I wait for an answer. I just wait. I don't write. I don't do anything. It's not like stream of consciousness. I just wait for God of the universe to give me an answer. And again, what I'm doing is priming my unconscious mind to give me answers. I, I, I don't arrive at them logically. Anything I've ever created in my life has dropped into my head out of the blue. I wasn't even thinking about it. And so I write that down. And the other practice, if I don't get an, an answer to the question, I set myself the following task. I have to think of an idea I've never thought of before. So every morning for like the last, I don't know, 30 odd years, more than that, my practice is not to leave, not to get up 
until I can think of an idea I've never thought of before. And that becomes progressively harder because you keep, you know, you run out of ideas, but then, you know, you get better and you come up with it. And again, it's developing like anything else, you know, your mind and your intuitive mind can be developed with practice, just like, you know, your rifle shooting ability or, or your, you know, public speaking skills or anything else. You just got to work at it. Going off of that, I'm going to share a quote from your bestie, as you called him, Joshua Aitzkin. I came across it a couple of years ago, and it always actually stuck with me. Uh, and it's the key to pursuing excellence is to embrace an organic, long-term learning process and not to live in a shell of static, safe mediocrity. Usually growth comes at the expense of previous comfort or safety. And I, I hear a lot of those same sentiments in what you're saying here. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you could elaborate on that uh, a little bit more, that'd be great. So what he meant, what I do, and by the way, I do it when I'm speaking, like right now, is I speak and I push myself beyond where I can have prepared thoughts, right? It's really a parkour leap. So what Josh was talking about, you hear all the greats do this. You have to really find out what your limits are. Your limits might be psychological, might be physical. Bruce Lee, same thing, right? You, you just look at him and you go, oh my God, every day, every minute of his life, he was pushing boundaries every day. And think about it like this. If you push your limits, just 1% a week, you're just moving the frontier out, right? Just a little bit, 1% a week. I forget what that compounds to, but I think it's about 100% at the end of the year. <laughs> You've just doubled your ability and right because of compounding, right? I think, it's, I think it's about that, yeah. So little incremental excursions, right? Because it's an excursion in an area you're not comfortable with and to be okay with that and really work in that little area. That's another thing really successful people do is they, they focus on, say, an area, like a tennis player, a backhand. I'm just going to like, you know, work on my backhand until that gets up to a certain level. So yeah, and it takes, I would say it takes courage, but it doesn't really. You know, Josh, in, in somewhere else, he said, Move in the direction of your fear. And generally, that's, I would say that's true. People talk about flow state where you're optimally in sync with whatever you're doing. Like when time is standstill, race car drivers talk about this, chess players, swimmers, all domains, artists, where you're just lost in whatever you're doing. I like to go beyond that and push into the exhilaration zone beyond flow, where I'm actually a little scared. <laughs> I forget which race car driver, I think it was Mario Andretti, who said, if you're in control of your car, you're not moving fast enough. Obviously, you don't want to move too fast, right? That's a, that's a delicate game. But to be okay with that, because you're in it, like Josh said, for the long haul, right? It takes years or sometimes decades to get to really acquire mastery. There's a great book actually on, on that called uh, Rise of the Superman by Stephen Kotler. And it details how people can get to world-class levels in like a couple of years, sometimes less than a year. Imagine you, Jacob, take up, I don't know, badminton. And in a year, you're the best badminton player in the world. Like <laughs> That's what we're doing right now with podcasting. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. That's exactly it. You just push yourself out there. And, you know, they have that thing, you know, you got to have 10,000 hours experience. You can accelerate that. That's an interesting concept because I've heard that as well. And the 10,000 hours and how do you accelerate it then? You know, it's, um, 
partly it's, it's what I just said about pushing the boundaries every single day. You know, people to really perform at the highest level, so much of it is mental and you can't actually do it for too long any given day. It's exhausting. Like real mental effort is like Olympic powerlifting. It's exhausting. And you can't maintain a high level for too long. And so I think rest is super important, whatever you're doing. Punctuate it with lots of rest. Most people overtrain, whatever it is. Better like quality efforts and little bursts with lots of rest in between. I think one of the things too is just getting past this idea of looking stupid. Uh, you know, at first when you're when you're moving to try to better yourself at something and, and really? Yeah, just getting over the embarrassment of oh, I'm well, not then, gonna look good doing this because I'm yeah, trying this for the first time. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you something right now. Joe, you've heard me say this before. If you feel any negative emotion, whether it's anger or embarrassment or anything, it's a sign your attention is misplaced. Your attention should only be in one of two places, the person in front of you or the task at hand. Michael Jordan once said he never thought about missing a shot, ever. And why did he never think about missing a shot? Because his attention was 100% focused on making it. There's no room for wondering, oh, what happens if I miss the shot? And so embarrassment, Joe, is a sign that your attention is off the task at hand or the person in front of you. My attention, because I can't see your handsome face, is on Jacob right now. Probably better that way. (laughs) Probably better. Probably better. So I can't feel embarrassment. I'm incapable of it. I can't feel self-confidence either because my attention is on you. And self-confidence, the attention is on yourself. One of the key secrets in life is move your attention outward to other people and or the task at hand. And when you do that, you begin to transcend yourself. I know veterans and other people who are struggling with depression and other, you know, anxiety, very hard to do that. But, you know, I was saying this the other day, I was saying, when I go outside, every encounter I have is meditation. It's mindful because my attention is on you, Jacob. People who are listening to this don't realize we're videoing it. So like, they're just going to be listening, but I get to see your face. And so my attention is on you. And even if I couldn't see your face, I'd be listening real hard. That Michael Jordan quote, I'll bring up another great, I'm a huge golf fan. So uh, Rory McIlroy was interviewed once and somebody Mm -hmm. asked him, what does it feel like to hit a 340 yard drive down the middle of the fairway? And his response was normal. (laughs) For anybody who plays golf, it's not (laughs) normal. But for him, to your point, that was his thought process was that is what I should be doing every time. So every time. And by the way, Jordan said the same thing. He said he never took a shot in practice as if he were playing a game and a game depending on it. All the greats, Larry Bird, any of the golfers, anybody, everything they do, they execute it perfectly, which is why you can't do it for too long because it's just, it's just exhausting. And then you, then you want to practice, you get tired and exhausted and then you, when practicing bad habits. We're going to go ahead and end leading in the moment part one with Adam Robinson right there. And as you can see, Adam covered a lot of different topics and he certainly hit on a lot of great points. We hope you'll subscribe so you can go ahead and listen to part two as we finish up our conversation with Adam. So thank you again to all our listeners and thank you for joining us and please join us next week. Make sure you check us out at uh, fromthegreennotebook.com. You can read posts, listen to past episodes of the podcast, Subscribe to the monthly reading list and uh, Sunday email. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook. 
and Facebook and Instagram as well. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast and give us five stars on iTunes if you like what we're doing here so you can help us get From the Green Notebook out to more listeners. So I'm Jacob Garonsky signing off. We hope to see you next week. Shoot me down.